0: How many of you all are nervous about flying? Anybody in here nervous about flying? Okay, got a few. All right. I I know there are some who are not, some who do fear flying. I, I really don't unless I'm on a plane that does something I don't believe it should do. Then I get really nervous. How about you? Yeah, that's right. You ever been on a plane? And experience turbulence or or even something worse, anybody? yeah, well, when this happens, something that that I do i don 't know if you do this, but I do is I will look at the flight attendant and if there is any look of concern on his or her face, I know we got problems if not i can I can relax when I was uh, still serving at uh, Fellowship Bible Church in Fort Smith, Arkansas, we were on a mission trip to Nicaragua, and on our way back, the plane was not functioning as it should before we took off. We were getting ready to leave, and something just did not feel right, did not sound right with the plane and the flight attendants did not look right. So I knew something was wrong and sure enough it was. The problem was with the plane's battery so we did not take off thankfully and we had a long layover of about eight hours in Managua but uh, I knew by looking at the face of those flight attendants that something was off and I do this with doctors and nurses as well they don't seem concerned, I'm not concerned. If they do, I'm terrified, right? But, but I do that. In times of concern, I look to those who have more knowledge than I do, those who are in control of the situation, to know how I should think and feel about those situations and how I should respond. Believers, in times of concern, When difficult times come, when we are faced with trials, when bad men step into positions of authority, when we feel as if our world is headed right off the side of a cliff, what we are to do is we are to look to the one who has more knowledge than we do one who is in control of the situation, the one who is on the throne, the one who has all knowledge and all power, we are to look to God in His Word when it comes to how we are to think and feel and how we are to respond in times of concern. We're going to do that today. If you have your Bibles, turn to Esther chapter 3. Today we are going to learn about how God is at work and in control, even when bad leaders, evil men, step into positions of authority. We're continuing our series through Esther on the providence of God, entitled The Invisible Hand of God. And today we're going to look at the providence of God through two wicked rulers. Last week, we are in Esther chapter 2. And we learned last week that things were looking up for God's people in this story. Though they had been exiles in this area of the world, the Persian Empire, for years and years, in chapter 2 of Esther, two Jews, Mordecai and Esther, are put into influential positions in one of the most powerful empires in the world at this time, the Persian Empire. Esther becomes the queen Of Persia after Queen Vashti is removed. That's Esther chapter 1 by Xerxes. And Mordecai is working at the king's gate. And he's got close connection with the queen because they are cousins and Esther is his adopted daughter, okay? So things seem to be looking up for these Jewish exiles in this foreign and pagan land. That is until chapter 3. We will see today that the situation for the Jewish people takes a turn for the worse. And it gets much, much worse before it gets better. Yet, though that's the case, we are also going to talk about today how we see once again this morning God is at work in the shadows of this story. We're going to continue to talk about the invisible hand of God's providence in Esther. We're going to see him work this morning through two wicked rulers. And if you're you're visiting with us or you've been out the past couple of weeks, we don't have time to do a thorough review of what we've talked about so far because we've got a lot to cover today. We will do a thorough review when we have time later in this series. But uh, hopefully you'll catch up by what we do talk about today and also get online fellowshipjacksonville.com and you can listen to the first two sermons of the series and that will catch you up after, okay? What I want to do this morning is I want to look at Esther chapter 3 and I want to discuss this story And I want to talk about how things get bad for God's people and then I want to discuss once again how we see God again at work in this story as his people's deliverer. And I want to look at how this story points to an even greater work that God is going to do through another superior Savior at a different time in the future. So if you're not there, are you're not there yet, Esther 3. All right, get there. There are three bad things that happen in this chapter that affect our main characters and essentially all of God's people. First notice, Mordecai gets passed over for his enemy. That's the first thing that happens. Look at verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted, Now, let's stop there for just a minute. After what things? Well, after the events of Esther chapter 1 and chapter 2, right? After Queen Vashti is removed by Xerxes in chapter 1, after going to war with Greece and losing and replacing Vashti with Esther, that's chapter 2, and after the events that take place at the end of chapter 2. Remember, we talked about that last week. While working at the king's gate, Mordecai discovers a plot by two of the king's eunuchs to assassinate the king. He lets Esther know, Esther lets the king know, and the king's life is spared. These two men are captured and they're killed. And it is recorded in the book of records that Mordecai was the one responsible for getting this word out that saved the king's life. After these things, we are told there's going to be a promotion. Now, you would think it'd be Mordecai, right? I mean, the king can promote whomever he wants. He's the king, but he would not be the king. He would not be alive if it were not for Mordecai. So does he promote him? Well, let's look at it. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hammedatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. So Mordecai gets nothing right away for saving the king's life, and this man named Haman gets everything. The king advances him above everyone else but the king. He even gives him a throne, and he sets him above all the other rulers. And we're going to see in just a moment that Haman is a bad man. That's putting it lightly. I mean, his name just sounds villainous, doesn't it? Haman the Agagite. I mean, he sounds like a villain. And, and he was. And, and this is often how it goes in this fallen, sin-stained world in which we live. Good guys finish last. Mordecai did the right thing, put his life on the line, making this murderous plot known to save the king's life, and he gets nothing. And this wicked man named Haman the Agagite gets everything. Now, why was Haman such a villainous character? Well, he was born into a race of people who were great enemies of God's people. Context is key here, so bear with me for a moment. You see, the Agagites, that was another name for Amalekites, all right? Same group of people, they got their name, the Agagites did, from Agag, which was a common name used for the king of the Amalekites. It was used as much as Pharaoh for the Egyptian rulers or Caesar. That was just a common title. They were longtime enemies of the Jews. Amalek was the grandson of Esau, okay? That's from Amalek comes the Amalekites. So this feud goes all the way back to Jacob and Esau in Genesis, all right? God tells us that these two are going to be divided. These nations that are going to come from these two brothers are going to be at odds with one another. And, And they were. We're told that the Amalekites were one of the first to oppose the Jews' as they're coming out of Egyptian bondage. And when King Saul, the first of the Jewish kings, is in power, God tells him through Samuel, in Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 15, I want you to wipe out the Amalekites. That's what God tells him. Wipe them out. Don't leave any of them. Don't take any plunder. Kill their flock. Kill everything. And this is not the first time that God makes mention of this. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, God told his people to blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Now, when you first read that, without knowing the backstory and without knowing what's going to take place in Esther, it's really easy to view this as a harsh command by God. I mean, it's very easy to think, well, that's a little much. Wipe them completely out. But here in just a minute, we're going to learn who Haman is and what he's going to do. And you're going to understand, God knows what he's doing, right? He knows exactly what he's doing. He didn't stutter. He didn't make a mistake. But King Saul does not wipe them out. He does not completely obey God. He defeats the Amalekites. He kills many, but not all. He, he in fact, spares the king and he takes the flock, and the, and the plunder for himself. He just obeys God in part, which we learn from Samuel in this story that partial obedience is complete disobedience, and it carries with it severe consequences. So he doesn't wipe them out. King Saul doesn't. We're told in 1 Chronicles 4, verse 43, that a remnant of the Amalekites remained. And the Agagites, once again, named after their rulers, just another name for the Amalekites, and that's what Haman is, okay? Haman is an Agagite. He's, he's from the, the long line of Amalekites. And Haman, because of who he is and his background, being a born enemy of the Jewish people is going to become a a key player in this story, the story of Esther. He is like the, the, the Darth Vader or the Lex Luthor of this story, okay? Or if you prefer a historical example, because he's one, he's like Pharaoh from Exodus or King Herod from the Gospels, all right? An evil man And he is picked over Mordecai and others who would have been much, much better. I believe of all the rulers that Xerxes could have picked, I believe he picked the worst, the worst of all of them. And again, that's often how it goes in this fallen, sin-stained world in which we live, right? The most wicked of people end up in the most powerful of positions. We have seen it. We see it throughout biblical history. We have seen it throughout human history, and we see it today. Well, notice things continue to get worse for Mordecai and God's people. In addition to getting passed over by his enemy, notice this enemy gets angered by Mordecai. That's point number two. Look at verse two. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate, bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him, but Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants, who were at the king's gate, said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? So Xerxes has commanded them to bow down to Haman, right? And Mordecai did not. We're told when they spoke to him day after day. So notice this is not a one-time thing. Mordecai is continually not bowing before Haman. And he would not listen to them. They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. So, so notice here we see a different Mordecai than we saw in chapter 2. And and for those of y'all that missed last week, get online. I make a case for why Esther and Mordecai were flawed characters at the beginning of this story, though they make a turn. Mordecai was that way. He is in exile. He wasn't supposed to be. He was supposed to be back in Jerusalem, right? He was commanded to do so through Isaiah, but he wasn't. Mordecai is at the beginning of the story, standing in the background, hiding in the shadows, trying not to be seen. He keeps his Jewishness a secret. But here we see a different Mordecai, right, emerge. He's standing out. He's refusing to bow down to Haman. The reason, well, he says he's a Jew. Seems as if Mordecai is making a bit of a turn here. Remember, the Jews were told they're to have no other gods before the one true God and are not to bow to idols so it seems as if Mordecai is taking a stand here for God but I also believe that this feud between the Jews and the Agagites went both ways as much as the Agagites disliked the Jews the feelings were mutual All right? So that may have been another reason why Mordecai refused to bow down and show respect because they were sworn enemies. And Haman is not happy about it. Look at verse 5. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. Isn't it amazing how wonderful things can be going for you? everything going your way and you fixate on that one person or that one thing that's not right and that's all you think about and it drives you nuts you ever have that happen I think that's Haman's problem here he's filled with fury and and this is bad news for Mordecai because Mordecai uh, it's bad news for him because Haman is a a wicked person who comes from a long line of wicked people who have this history of hatred toward the Jewish people. And now he knows Mordecai is a Jew and he's going to come up with a sinister plan that will not only be bad for Mordecai, but for an entire race of Jews people. And that brings us to point number three. Notice not only is Mordecai passed over for an enemy, and not only does this enemy get angered at Mordecai, but notice point number three. This enemy devises a sinister plan to destroy the Jewish people. Look at verse six. But Haman disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him, the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. I would say that was a bit of an overreaction, wouldn't you? What a wicked, evil, sinister plan. Haman doesn't lay hands on Mordecai right away. That would have been bad enough. But instead, he begins to make plans to destroy all the Jews all of Mordecai's people. Why? He's a bad guy for one, right? But there's, there's some prejudices, I believe, that are coming into play as well. Now, how does he push this thing through? Haman has a lot of authority, but not enough to wipe out an entire race of people. We'll look at verse 7. <clears throat> In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the 12th year of King Ahasuerus. So notice more time has passed in our story. In chapter one, we're told that those events took place during the third year of the king's reign. And then in chapter two, we're told that those events took place during the seventh year of his reign, four years later. And now here, five more years have passed. In the 12th year of the king's reign, they cast per. That is lots. They cast lots before Haman, day after day, and they cast it month after month until the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. Now, what is going on here? Well, in this day, in this culture, like they did in the Jewish culture, when making a major decision, at times, they would cast lots. They would cast purr. It was a strange practice, sort of like rolling dice, Or flipping a coin today but many cultures did this to determine how and when they were going to do certain things in Jewish culture it was done to discern God's will in Persian culture there was a different false belief behind it where where the source of those answers came but it was a trusted practice and get this we know from Scripture that God is a God of Providence right he is the one who brings the results no matter what. Check out this verse up on the screen. Proverbs sixteen thirty three. The lot is cast into the lap. Sounds sort of random, doesn't it? But it's every decision is from the Lord. Haman didn't realize that. He's going to learn it the hard way. I'm not for sure that Haman really believes in this practice, but he is going to try to use this practice to get his way to his advantage. What he does here is he has lots cast. He has dice rolled before him day after day after day, month after month until the right number comes up. And when the right number is cast, he goes to reveal his plan to the king on the day he wants it done because that day and that month would be considered to be an opportune time to act. Or as many in the world would say, it would have been a lucky time to to move and act. Haman is a very manipulative leader. And we definitely see that here in this verse and in the verses to come. Look at verse 8. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. In other words, they're everywhere. These Jews are everywhere. They're a big problem. Can you see his prejudice coming out? You got these pesky Jews all over everywhere. He says, their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws. They are unruly. They are governed by another law. That is not the king's law, and we know what that law is, right? So that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. Now, I don't know if Haman really cared whether or not they were unruly toward the king or not in the Persian Empire, but he did care if they were unruly toward him, right? But we see here, Haman's got a personal vendetta against Mordecai and against this entire race of people. But he knew that's what the king wanted to hear, so that's what he told him. And there is a great lesson to be learned here by us. We need to be on guard against people who tell us what we want to hear to try to get from us what they want. We need to be on guard against people. We need to use God-given wisdom against people who say they are acting in our best interest but are simply trying to manipulate us to get out of us what they want from us and also we should not be treating other people in that way as well. Haman did. Xerxes allowed for himself to be influenced in this way and he's going to pay for it big time. He's going to see. What he just signed off on here in the upcoming chapters. Because remember, his wife is a Jew. He doesn't know that yet, but he's going to find out. He's going to find out. Notice what else Haman says. Look at verse 9. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay, Haman says, 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So on top of saying what the king wanted to hear and acting as if he was acting in the best interests of the king, Haman offers the king money. He says, I will pay 10,000 talents of silver. That's about 375 tons of silver. A lot of money. Now, the king had a lot of money, right? We discussed that in chapter 1. Remember, he throws this big party for six months. It's an open bar, all you can eat and drink for thousands of people. He had money. But this was nine years later. He had already gone to war with Greece, so he had probably spent millions between that time and and now that we're looking at today. So we don't know the financial state of things at this time, but 375 tons of silver would not hurt matters, right? Now, where did Haman get this money? He might have been wealthy. That might have been one of the reasons why the king promoted him, but we're also told in verse 13 that their plan as they're killing the jews is to plunder their goods to plunder the jews so that money could have come out of what they were going to take from the land and 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 the resources of the jews as well well let's think about this how's the king going to respond what do you think is he going to say whoa 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 you know kill the jews i mean how did why did i promote you that's a little harsh That's a little harsh, I mean, to to wipe out an entire race of people? Is that the way the king responds? No. Does he say this? Does he say, you know what, that's a major decision. Give me 24 to 48 to sleep on it. Is that what he says? Nope. Look at verse 10. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hammedatha, the enemy of the Jews. I like how that's thrown in. We know there's a Jewish author here, right? Probably Mordecai, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. He doesn't even bat an eye. He doesn't think twice. I told you Xerxes was evil. Don't believe the movies that portray him as Prince Charming. He was not. He's a bad guy. He just signed the death warrant of an entire race of people, the Jewish people, without batting an eye. Because he agreed with Haman that they might be a pesky bunch and because he was greedy. Notice it says, he took his signet ring It's a ring that was on the king's hand. He gave it to Haman. This ring had a signet or a a symbol on it and pressed down on a piece of wax. It served as the king's signature. And by the king giving it to Haman, he's basically giving him a blank check. He says, I don't care what you do with these people. All I want is all of the empire committed to me and I want money in my treasury. That's all I care about. Look at verses 12 through 14. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, and in case they didn't get that, to kill, and in case they didn't get the message, to annihilate all Jews, young and old. Women and children in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. Verse 14, a copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. Now, remember, the Persian Empire was huge. It was was made up of many different nations. We know Jerusalem is included there. So so those Jews are sentenced to die as well. Many different nations and, and peoples who spoke different languages and Jews are scattered throughout this kingdom. And notice everything Haman commanded throughout this vast empire, it happened just like that. That is power, right? Haman, this wicked man, had a ton of power. This law for the destruction of the Jews was written in every language for every person in the empire. It was written in the name of the king, sealed with the king's ring, which made it final and irrevocable. We talked about the law of the Medes and the Persians that was in place at this time. That meant that uh, what what that was was that said that the laws that were made by the king of Persia, they were written in stone. They were irrevocable They were considered, get this, inerrant and unchanging. Xerxes sat up on his throne as a god, and his words were considered divine. They were law, unchanging, irrevocable. And think about this. This had to have been terrifying to the Jews. Imagine if you're you're them in this context, and the king of the Persian Empire has sent out this edict that said that you're going to die, but not only you, all your children, your grandchildren, your parents, grandparents are all going to die on this one day. And it was written in stone. You'd be terrified, wouldn't you? I can imagine they were. And what are these two leaders, these two wicked rulers doing? as this decree is going out. Look at it. It's pretty unbelievable. Verse 15. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king. And the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. While the city is in an uproar and the Jews are devastated by this decree coming out, we're told that Xerxes and Haman sit down and have cocktails. That is evil on the highest level right there. Wouldn't you agree? Xerxes did not view the Jews as people, but as numbers that he could do without, so his rule would not be threatened, so that he would remain in power, so that he could add more cash to his bank account. There are people today who function in that way. They treat people like that. They don't view them as, as people, but as numbers. And they make decisions solely based upon how it will benefit them, not thinking twice about how it will affect large numbers of people. We shouldn't be like that. Shouldn't be like that. Notice there is confusion in, in Susa among the non-Jews. I mean, they're confused. Why? Why are the Jews being sentenced to die? I mean, they had a different perspective, right? Than than Xerxes and Haman. Though Haman painted the Jews as a wicked people, the citizens of Susa seemed to disagree, which I think should indicate to us that there was no fault in these Jewish people. They had done nothing deserving death. They were innocent just like Jesus. It's a bad situation, isn't it? Some of you are probably thinking, well, where is God in all of this? Where is he? If there was ever a time for him to show up, now would be that time, don't you think? He seems absent. Some of you are probably thinking to yourselves, Grandma, I, I thought you said at the beginning that when times get tough, we're to-, we're to look to God. I don't know where to find him here. Well, I want you to notice something very important. It's very, very easy miss i want you to, to show you this look at verse 12 again i want you to notice when this decree was sent out we're told that the instruction to destroy to kill and to annihilate all jews young and old women and children in one day was sent out on the 13th day of the first month do you know what day that was Listen to this and tell me if God is not in control. That was the eve of Passover. The eve of Passover. What Warren Wiersbe tells us in his commentary on Esther that the Jews were getting ready to celebrate Passover when this went out. In one of my study Bibles that I use for prep, it says this. Check out this quote up on the screen. On the day before the Jewish Passover in 474 B.C., the decree is sent to each major government leader in the Persian Empire that the Jewish people were to be annihilated on a single day. This murderous, sinister plot to wipe out God's people went out on the eve of Passover. This story reminds me of a few other stories that took place on the eve of Passover, doesn't it, you? One takes place in Exodus 12, Remember this story? Same Jewish people, different time, in a different place, but a similar story. The Jews are away from home. They're in a foreign land. This time, it's not Persia, but Egypt. And the evil ruler is not Xerxes, but Pharaoh. But God's people are exiles, and they are in danger, and God uses an unlikely Jew named Moses to deliver his people. And this story... And Esther, God's going to do a similar work. Though God's people are exiles in Persia and have this irrevocable law that has been sent out throughout the empire on the eve of Passover that they are to be destroyed, God is going to once again use not one but two unlikely Jews to save his people. And now fast forward a few hundred years later. This time in Jerusalem, In this story, you have the Jewish people wanting to kill one man who people say is the Messiah, the the Savior. And on the eve of Passover, they send for him to be arrested and killed, and God is going to use this man, whom many view to be an unlikely Jew from Nazareth, to deliver his people once again, but this time he's going to do so in a very unlikely way. He's not going to do it like he did through Moses who went before Pharaoh and demanded that Pharaoh set God's people free. He's not going to do it like he did through Queen Esther who risked her life going before the king to stand before him on behalf of her people. But listen, he's going to do it by allowing his Messiah, his Savior, his Son, God the Son, to be condemned and killed with criminals. So we've been saying over the past few weeks. Though this story, the story of Esther, is a story of God providing deliverance from physical death for his Jewish people through his appointed yet flawed saviors. Remember we talked about that last week, they're flawed. The main story in this book, this entire book, the Bible, it's all about how our God provided an even greater spiritual deliverance from sin and the second death through His perfect Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, though He did not deserve it, though He was a model citizen, perfect in every way the perfect man a man without sin the blameless man the innocent man the god man he was sent for on the eve of passover but he was not spared he was arrested and condemned and killed all of that happened for us happened for us that's the gospel that's the gospel the Christ, God the Son, the Messiah was sent by God to us to live for us and die for us and be raised for us so that we through faith alone in him alone could be forgiven of sin and made a right with God so that we could be saved. Paul says this in Romans 8, 32, God did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. So the question for you today is this, God sent his son. He did not spare his son. Jesus laid down his life. He gave his life for you. The question I have for you is, have you given your life back over to him? Have you given your life to him? The one who gave his life for you, have you given your life up and over to him? Have you experienced the deliverance that Jesus came to bring? Have you turned from your sin? Have you made him the Lord of your life? Like it or not, get this, we all have a death sentence that's been placed upon us. Do you know that? And it's because of our sin. The Jews in Persia, they did not deserve the death sentence placed upon them. But guess what? We deserve it. We deserve it because of our sin. The wages for our sin, God says in his word, is death. Not just physical, spiritual. But because of Christ, we can have life eternally and spiritually and get this one day physically even though we die and the way we experience this deliverance is by turning our life up and over to jesus by making king jesus our lord by pledging our allegiance to him by giving our life to him by placing our faith and trust in christ alone have you made this decision if not i pray you would today let's pray